0: Hosea 4, 1 through 6, 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their god to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to bel Beth Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know, Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, Israel is defiled, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go and to seek the Lord. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria And sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress. Earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come up. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth.
1: Well, thanks, Megan, for reading a long and heavy passage of God's word. I would imagine that most of us are not used to listening to six minutes of prophetic judgment texts. (laughs) But that's what we just did together. We're returning to our sermon series in the book of Hosea, a book that was written about 2,700 years ago in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, we saw the prophetic life of Hosea. His long-suffering patience toward his own unfaithful wife, which was a picture of the Lord's long-suffering patience toward his unfaithful people. But in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, through the end of the book, in chapter 14, we now turn from Hosea's prophetic life to Hosea's prophetic message. Chapter 4, verse 1 opens with these words, Hear the word of the Lord. And of course, in some ways that we'll need to pay attention to, God was addressing specific people in a specific place at a specific time, and yet our Christian conviction is that even today, in these words of Holy Scripture, God is speaking. And the question then is, are we listening? What does Hosea say? What is this prophetic message, and what does it have to do with us today? These are the questions ...that we'll consider. It's a very long passage of Scripture, as you probably noticed, and so uh, good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it, I won't take the time to look at every verb and every connecting word between these verses... So if you wonder why I don't take more time to talk about chapter 4, verse 14 or something like that, come and talk to me later. This is a big passage of Scripture, and we're going to have to deal in broad brush strokes a little bit, but I think it's worth doing so that we get the feel, so that we start to notice the rhythm of how prophetic literature works in the Old Testament, so that we start to hear the voice of God speaking through His Word. ...in Scripture. Today we'll notice the prophetic analysis... ...a prophetic warning... ...and then a prophetic hope in this passage. We'll begin with part one, a prophetic analysis. Hosea's message begins in chapter four with a familiar prophetic style. It's the style of listening to God's charges against His people... It sounds a little bit like a courtroom setting. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The Lord has a complaint against you. It sounds like legal language. You know, often we think of biblical prophets as some kind of fortune tellers. Or maybe we think of biblical prophets mainly as future predictors and occasionally, The biblical prophets do talk about things that will happen in the future, but that is not their main or primary mark. Their main work, when we're talking about biblical prophets, is to speak on behalf of God's covenant. In this sense, some people think that we should think of biblical prophets as something like prosecuting attorneys who work for the Lord, who are responsible for enforcing the partnership agreement or the covenant agreement between God and His people. I think a better image might be the image of a covenant mediator rather than a prosecuting attorney. It's helpful to think of the biblical prophets as here as kind of authorized representatives of the Lord and His partnership agreement. The Lord and His covenant with His people mediating, And seeking to mediate between God and His people. Here in chapter 4, Hosea speaks up as a representative of the covenant. And he says, the Lord has a complaint. The Lord has a concern. The Lord has a controversy with you. What is the Lord's controversy? Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Excuse me, the end of verse 1 rather. The Lord's controversy begins here with this vertical issue. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love, and there is no true knowledge of God in the land. Now in verse 2, the Lord's controversy with His people is going to turn horizontal. The Lord is concerned about things like adultery, and violence, and lying. The Lord is concerned about these horizontal issues of morality and ethics. More than half of the Ten Commandments, perhaps, has to do with these issues of how we relate with other people in our lives. These things matter, and yet the first, the foremost, the primary, the core issue of God's concern with His people is this, there is unfaithfulness among God's people. We hear this after the first three chapters, which pictured a husband's And his beloved who was unfaithful to him. And we can't help but hear some of the echoes. Of a faithful husband. And an unfaithful beloved wife. As we hear the Lord's charge against his people. My concern is that there is unfaithfulness. Infidelity. Among the people of God. But that infidelity among the people of God shows up in some surprising ways. More specifically, the prophetic analysis goes on to reveal that there is more specifically a certain kind of religious unfaithfulness among God's people. We see this especially in chapter 4, verses 4 through the end of the chapter. As we read chapter 4 a moment ago, maybe you noticed how much of chapter 4 speaks to priests the religious leaders among God's people. Among young people today, millennials, Gen Z, among young people today, there is a heightened passion to speak out against corrupt leadership. I think that's a good thing, at least as far as it goes. And in fact, as passionate as some young people might be today to speak out against corruption amongst leaders, as we read God's Word, as we read the message of the prophets, we realize that as much as we may be passionately opposed to hypocritical leadership in churches, the Lord Himself is just as much, if not more passionately opposed to hypocritical leadership among His people. Look with me again at verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Or skip down to verse 7 in chapter 4. The more the priests increased, the more they sinned against Me. So I will change their glory into Shame. Verse 8: They fed or they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Why? Why? Here's the issue right there in verse 10. Because they have forsaken the Lord. I heard another leader once point out that no book in human history is as opposed to corrupt religious leadership as the Bible. Nothing written by Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche comes close to the degree to which the Bible speaks with strong, bold opposition to corruption amongst religious leaders. Hypocrisy amongst religious leaders. The Lord is going to do something about it. Hosea tells us the Lord is opposed to corrupt religious leaders who have forsaken Him, and He's going to do something about it. Their, their pursuits will end up empty. But that's not all. The Lord is opposed to a kind of religious unfaithfulness that is not only found amongst God's uh, not only found amongst leaders among God's people, but also a kind of religious infidelity, a religious unfaithfulness that can be much more widespread. In verse 12, we see this picture of God's people inquiring of a piece of wood. In other words, God's own people going to an idol. And the foolishness of it is kind of felt. You've got access to me, our Creator says. And you'd rather pray to a piece of wood? It's easy for us today to kind of stand back and say, well, I don't pray to pieces of wood. I don't go and worship in Hindu temples, therefore, not about me, right? And yet this passage presses even deeper than the externals, doesn't it? Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Why? For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. Remember, we took a little while, a couple weeks ago, to talk about what idolatry is. And we pointed out that according to the Bible itself, idolatry is not only a matter of worshiping stone statues or wooden statues. It's something that can run much deeper. There are idols of the heart, as the prophet Ezekiel puts it. There is spiritual whoredom, as Hosea puts it. There's a kind of spiritual infidelity to the Lord, which is a matter of placing our hope in something or someone other than the Lord Himself. And so we talked a couple weeks ago, we don't have time to get into it at length today, but we talked a couple weeks ago about Josh Anderson's helpful diagnostic question, what are you tempted to put your hope in to give you what you really want? That's an indicator of what we're making an idol. That's an indicator, as the prophet Hosea would say, of our spiritual infidelity. And of course, even then, we say, all right, fine. But I'd like to share one other quote with you about idolatry today. Here in this church family, we have an awesome deacon and small group leader named Paul Wood who sent something insightful this week. We were talking about this passage, and he said that we need to hear this stuff in God's word. Why? Because, here's the quote from Paul Wood, we become too cozy with our idols. I wonder if you recognize some of that coziness in your own life. It's just a little bit of covetousness, just a little bit of longing for what my neighbor has been given by God that I haven't been given. No big deal, right? The New Testament says covetousness is idolatry. Maybe we get a little too cozy with this kind of coveting. Maybe it's just a little more savings. The Bible itself teaches us we should store up for the future, right? Right? And yet perhaps we've become a little bit too cozy with putting our hope and our trust in our savings instead of in the Lord Himself. It's just a little bit of booze. I just need a few more likes on social media. I just need a few more friends on campus. I just need one more step in my career. I just need one upgrade in my house and then I'll be happy. We can become too cozy with idols in our lives. And then there's the pleading voice of the prophet in chapter 4, verse 12. That is a spirit of whoredom, he says. Yikes. See, this is Hosea's prophetic analysis of religious unfaithfulness among God's people, it's spiritual infidelity. This needs to wake us up a little bit. But then comes chapter 5, and there's a new twist, perhaps an unexpected twist. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 5, verse 1. It begins, hear this, O priests. So this is an echo of what we've been hearing in chapter 4, a message to the religious leaders of God's people in Hosea's day. But then look at what else we read in chapter 5, verse 1. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare. Who is the Lord addressing here? The house of the king. The princes, as he says later on. He's addressing not only the problem of Religious leaders and religious hopes that can lead us astray or that can pull our hearts slowly away from the Lord our God and allegiance to Him alone. He's also talking about the danger of political leaders and political hopes that can pull our hearts slowly further and further away from allegiance to the Lord our God and to Him alone. This theme kind of comes to a crescendo in chapter 5, verse 13, this theme of political unfaithfulness among God's people. Chapter 5, verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to the Lord? No, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria, one of the great political powers of Hosea's day. He sent to the great king, not meaning Yahweh, meaning Tiglath-Pileser III, the emperor of Assyria. But the Lord says he is not able to cure you. He's not able to heal the wounds that you feel. And that you want to be healed. What's going on here is that there is a movement among God's people in Hosea's day to seek help from the powerful nation of Assyria and her great king. Second Kings chapter 15 tells us a painful story about how one of the kings of Israel in Hosea's lifetime laid a heavy burden of exacting taxes. Exacting financial taxes on God's people in order to gather money. Why? To give it to the king of Assyria in order to buy political security. Listen, Israel needed an Assyria policy in their day, they needed policies in place. But the way they sought security revealed that even while they said they worship Yahweh, even while they said we trust in Him, even while they said we belong to Yahweh and He's all our hope, they were really putting their hope not in Yahweh, but in the great political power of their day, Assyria and her king. And here is Hosea's blunt analysis. Chapter 5, verse 4, echoes the analysis of chapter 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Why? For a spirit of whoredom is within them. You see, even though they needed an Assyrian policy, placing hope in Assyria is tantamount to spiritual whoredom, according to the prophet It's turning away from hoping in the Lord in order to hope in someone or something else in order to give them what they really wanted. Now, what about us? A full description of this topic would take way more time than we want to devote to the topic today, especially because this year... As you're very aware, our nation is kind of socially splitting apart. It's fragmenting over different political visions of what makes America great, right? And unfortunately, in churches across America, we see a mirror image of that fragmenting that's happening in our culture around us, happening within churches. There's a fragmenting, not only in the world, but in the church over different political visions. And we wonder, why is the church simply reflecting the fracturing and the polarization of the world around us? Maybe it's because we're absorbing and mirroring the political views of our neighbors without a distinctive allegiance to the Lord above all else. Now my point today is not to say that Christians should never engage in political discussions. In my view, and I'll be clear, this doesn't represent all Christians everywhere, but in my view it's fine, in fact, is potentially even very good for Christians to care about politics or to invest their vocation in politics. Why? Well, another prophet, Jeremiah, says to God's people, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, right? So there is this biblical idea that as the Lord's people, we should seek the good of the city, the state, the nation around us. We should pray for the good of the city, the state, the nation around us. We should seek it and seek to contribute to the good of the city, the state, the nation around us. And so my understanding is that, is that it is at least fine and potentially even very good for Christians to care about and engage in political discussions about what will lead to the flourishing of our city, our state, or our nation. And yet, and yet a problem shows up, right? Right? As we get engaged in seeking the good of our city, our state, or our nation, a problem shows up when our partisan allegiances pull us away from our singular allegiance to the God who reveals Himself in Scripture. And this shift in allegiances really does happen. Sometime within the last year, a group called Nationscape did a survey. It's a UCLA research research organization. They're not a religious group per se. They did a survey and they asked people, how important are each of the following to your identity? Being American versus your religious beliefs. What is most important to your identity? Here's what they found amongst those who described themselves as both white and evangelical. 16 percent, 16 percent said being American is more important than my religious beliefs. Now, I know all of you are like, they're the ones from the other party. (laughs) I don't know what party they were from, but I know they call themselves the Lord's people. They call themselves evangelical Christians. And 16% say being American is more important. But get this, 71%, nearly three quarters, 71, more than two thirds, 71% of evangelicals say that my religious beliefs and being American are equally important to me. Leaving only 13 who said that my religious beliefs are more important to me than what I understand it means to be American and than what I understand it means to make America great. Now, I don't know how that happened. Does that strike you as perplexing? It's easy for me to look at this data and say, well, maybe everybody just doesn't understand what the word evangelical means anymore. It's easy for me to look at this data and say, yeah, that's the bad Christians out there. But there's something about this data that I think works best in a log and spec kind of framework. Instead of giving me an opportunity to walk around and point a finger at everybody else and say, y'all are messed up, This data is a helpful moment for me to slow down and say, where is my allegiance for real? And if Hosea were here today, I wonder if he would plead with us. Dear Christians, if you are trying to be married to Jesus, and at the same time married to your partisan political views, you'll end up being unfaithful to one of your two spouses. It won't work to be married to both. So, should we care about our neighbors? Should we pray for our city, our state, our nation? Yes, But Hosea chapter 5 is calling us to put our hope, to give our devotion to Yahweh and Yahweh alone above all else. Anything else, Hosea says in his prophetic analysis, is a spirit of whoredom. Shocking language meant to wake us up. So here's a question before we move on from Hosea's prophetic analysis, and we'll speed up from this point on. But here's a question I want to ask here. What pulls your spirit away from devotion to God above all else? Sometimes we don't need hours of analysis. And perhaps the Holy Spirit has been trying to get your attention and trying to wake you up to this for some time. What pulls your spirit away from devotion to God above all else? But that brings us to a second thing that Hosea draws our attention to. It's a prophetic warning. It's a prophetic warning. And we see that warning right here in Hosea chapter 5, verse 14. Where Hosea, in the voice of the Lord, warns the people. Right after, this, right after this statement, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Verse 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear. Go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. Now, this wakes us up a little bit for a few different reasons, one of them being how uncomfortable many of us are with this description of God like a lion. Now, Some of the lion imagery might be explained by the fact that uh, the king of Assyria used a lion as his image. And so maybe there's a little bit of artful play here with the Lord saying, You want to call to the lion of Assyria? You'll get a lion. But it's not a lion coming to protect you. It's a lion that will come to tear away unfaithfulness. Maybe there's a little bit of a word play going on there, but even there, listen to how emphatic this is. I, even I, will tear and go away. This is a description of a serious kind of judgment from the Lord that he personally takes credit for. Millennials and Gen Z, I was encouraging you earlier for your passion for justice, your zeal for corruption amongst leaders to be called out. But if we cultivate a passion for human justice without a picture of a just God, do you know where we'll end up eventually? Frustrated, burnt out, jaded, Angry at everybody and out of energy. Better news the Bible brings. It's not better news that says, chill out, justice doesn't matter. It's not a message that says, chill out, leadership failures are no big deal. It's not a message that says, chill out, the idolatry of my people when their hearts go astray isn't really that big of a problem. It's not a message that says, fine, go and devote yourself to other things. I don't even care. It's a message that says justice does matter, but it's a message that says vengeance belongs to the Lord. I will take care of the repaying. Thank you very much, says the Lord which enables us to be people who care deeply about justice and righteousness in society, in our homes, in our lives, without taking the anger, the frustration, the disappointment, and the burnout that so often will go with it. The Lord here claims that He is just and that like a jealous lover... This is the category in systematic theology that is very confusing to us sometimes. The category that describes our God as being jealous is confusing to us because we say almost every experience I've ever had with jealousy is wrong. How could we say that a just and holy and righteous God is jealous? And yet here is our holy and righteous and just God demonstrating his jealousy, not as, an enra- not as a fit of rage that is an over-the-top emotional experience, but demonstrating his jealousy as the right response of a lover who sees his beloved turning away. The right response of a lover who sees his beloved turning away, who says, I will do whatever it takes to bring you back. Right? And here's a surprising description of the Lord's jealousy in action. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. And a few questions come up about this description of God's judgment. One of them is to say, now, isn't this just about one specific scenario that was just about to happen? And my answer would be, it did refer to a specific scenario that was just about to happen later in hosea's lifetime the arrival of assyria to tear apart god's people by removing them into uh, by removing them into exile and yet god is like this not only at this moment in time consider for example psalm 50 verses 22 and 23 given to the people of god to pray to sing given to the people of God for our instruction. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Mark this, you who forget to God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. Now somebody says, fine, you've got two Old Testament passages that talk about the judgment of God, but isn't it true that like the Old Testament, God is really mean, cranky, and judgmental, and the New Testament, God is very nice, gentle, and always sweet? And I would say, no. (laughs) It's not true, actually. Why? In part, because it is the same God revealed in both Testaments. But... Listen to how Jesus, our loving Lord, speaks about a judgment that is yet to come. A tearing apart, if you will. He says in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And this is the point in Jesus' teaching where the people say, Lord, when did, you know, Lord, and, uh, when did we... When did we give you a cup of water and so forth? And he said, as you did it to the least of these, so you did it to me. Enter the joy of my kingdom. But then, this is our loving Lord Jesus, then he will, he will say to those on his left, depart from me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Listen, make no mistake, our loving Lord Jesus, just as the prophet Hosea before him, our loving Lord Jesus forecasts that there is a day of fierce judgment up ahead, and in light of that, we should stand in awe. And in the meantime, as we await the day of judgment, there are sometimes temporary experiences of judgment that we will face. You notice in Hosea chapter 6, there is this repeated refrain. My people will seek me but they won't be able to find me or there it is at the end of Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 I will return again to my place I will withdraw my presence from them sometimes the Lord as we await the final ultimate larger judgment that is to come the Lord in his kindness and mercy the Lord in his kindness and mercy brings Temporary, short-term judgments discipline into our lives. Why? To wake us up and to draw us back to Him. In fact, this is precisely what the Scriptures teach. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The Lord disciplines who? The one He loves. Or... To take the words of Jesus himself, often overlooked in Revelation chapter 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. What's the take-home point? So, be zealous and repent. So listen, as we consider this reality that we have been, that we have been, unfaithful to our lion-like God. What do we do? Where do we go? If we've been unfaithful to our lion-like God, our only true hope is to return to the Lord and to Him alone. If we have been unfaithful to our lion like God in our hearts, in spiritual unfaithfulness, in spiritual infidelity, in spiritual whoredom, our only hope is to return to the Lord as our only true hope. And that brings us to the prophetic hope that Hosea beautifully lays out in front of us Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come. Since we have been unfaithful, to our God who is like a lion, come, let us return to the Lord. And I'm very aware that if I give you three application points each week, and if you're at church 50 weeks a year, Pretty quickly, that's 150 things you're trying to juggle. It can feel dizzying. And so in kindness, in mercy, in love, I'm trying to emphasize in this sermon series on the book of Hosea, we've really got one application point for this whole sermon series. And is right there. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, it's repeated again in Hosea chapter 14. It's echoed over and over, but it's right there. What's our application point for this whole sermon series? If we have been unfaithful to our God who is like a lion in His jealousy and in His justice, what should we do? Come. Let's return wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now, at risk of giving you three application points and multiplying those out, let me point out three simple ways. I'm not doing three more points. sermon's about to land here, all right? But let me point out three aspects of what it means to return to the Lord. Number one, brothers and sisters, let's take our guilt seriously. The prophetic hope begins with this. I will again return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Listen, we will not have a full experience of the full prophetic hope until we have a full embrace of the full prophetic revelation of our guilt before God. And so brothers and sisters in an era when it is easy to point the finger at other groups and it is easy to point the finger at other people with human hearts that are prone to pride and self-defense and minimizing my guilt with human hearts that love to imagine there is only a speck in my eye while everybody else obviously has a log in theirs. Come, let us return to the Lord involves acknowledging my own guilt. For us as a church, it involves acknowledging our unfaithfulness to our lion-like God. Returning to the Lord, secondly, needs to involve believing in the God who revives. Otherwise, why would we even bother returning to Him? And yet listen to this beautiful prophetic hope. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. And if Hosea could shout these words of hope 2,700 years ago, how much more should we shout this hope to one another today, having seen Jesus Overcome the grave, knowing that we have been baptized with him into death so that we might live in newness of life. Let's acknowledge our guilt. Let's take our guilt seriously. Let's believe in the God who revives. And then, brothers and sisters, let's press on to know him. Let's not sit content with the degree to which we've known our lion-like God up to this point in our lives. Let's not rest content with our limited understanding of who He is and our limited understanding of the unfathomable depths of His glory and majesty and mercy and might. Let's not rest content. Let's press on to know the Lord. Let's press on to know Him. There's more to Him than we've yet seen. The lion who tears also heals. The lion who tears also unifies. Thank God for the lion-like God who is also a lamb, standing as though it has been slain for the sins of the world to redeem for Himself a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And let's, re- let's return to Him that we may join in that glorious song forevermore. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the one who is seated on the throne and the Lamb who was slain. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to, join, who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to make their way up here. This is an opportunity for us as we take the Lord's Supper each week for us in kind of a physical, tangible way to return to the Lord. He has spread a feast in front of us and this is an opportunity for us to acknowledge our guilt before God. Why did Christ die for our sins if not for our sins? It's an opportunity for us to take our guilt seriously. And yet it's an opportunity for us to draw near, not in, not in frightened disbelief, but in faith in the God who revives. In faith in the one who gave himself in love for us, that we might live forevermore with him. It's an opportunity for us to press on to know him. If you're with us today and you're not following Jesus as your Lord, we'll ask you to hang out where you are for. The next couple minutes, the reason we make that request is because taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of ongoing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To take it without faith is kind of taking it uh, hypocritically or something like that. And so we'll ask you just to hang out where you are. But if that's you, we would love to say to you, like even today, we would love to invite you to come to Jesus, to place your trust in him. And to begin this journey of knowing Him. Discovering the truth about the God who revives. And discovering, not by denying our guilt, but admitting it. Discovering life forevermore with Him. We'd love to invite you, even today, to come to Jesus. And at this time, for all who live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. You may come to take the bread and the cup in glad-hearted remembrance of our great Redeemer.
0: You may come.